My commentary this week includes a summary of the reading, a discussion of the star of these chapters, Razu Mihin, and I take on the question why so many readers, including me, find themselves sympathizing with an axe murderer. So let's get started with a focus summary of Part 2, Chapters 3 and 4. After his hallucinatory nightmare, Raskolnikov spent days feverish, delirious, and half-conscious. Afterward, he recalled people coming and going from his room, talking about him, squabbling, plotting, and laughing. Among them was Nastasia, and a man he recognized but could not, to his frustration, identify. All the while, he felt like there was something he had forgotten and ought to remember, and the struggles to remember tormented him and made him fly into rage or sink into terror. At times he would try to run away, but someone would always stop him. Finally, one day he returns to consciousness to discover Nastasia and a stranger in his room. Then Razumihin comes bursting through the door, knocking his head against the low ceiling of Raskolnikov's flat. He addresses himself to the stranger, who introduces himself as a messenger from the merchant Shalopayev. Razumihin then tells Raskolnikov that for four days he has eaten almost nothing and that the doctor has diagnosed him as having a nervous condition brought on by bad feeding. He then asks the messenger what he wants. The man replies that if he finds Raskolnikov in an intelligible condition, he is to remit to him 35 rubles, received at his mother's request from Varushin. Raskolnikov indicates that he remembers Varushin and Razumihin declares that this proves him to be in an intelligible condition. When the messenger says he requires a signature, Razumihin tries to hold Raskolnikov's hand and help him sign. Raskolnikov makes a feeble objection, saying he doesn't want the money. But when Razumihin insists, he pushes him away and says he will do it alone. The messenger gives him the money and goes away and Razumihin asks Nastasia to bring some soup, tea, and a couple bottles of beer. It seems Nastasia has been charmed by Razumihin, since she teases him while happily carrying out his orders. So, too, it seems, is the landlady, who Razumihin says loves to do anything for him and has been feeding him heartily for days. Razumihin feeds Raskolnikov as if he were an invalid, and Raskolnikov makes no resistance, cunningly aware that if he pretends still not to have possession of his faculties, he can lie low and find out what is going on. Razumihin then explains what has been happening while Raskolnikov was laid up. After Raskolnikov rascally decamped his flat, he resolved to find and punish him, and all it took was two minutes at the address bureau to learn where he lived. Arriving at Raskolnikov's flat, he says, he got to know all of his affairs. All, all, brother, I know everything. And has made the acquaintance of Nikodim Famich, Ilya Petrovich, Zamyatov, Peshenka, and Nastasia. Razumihin flirts with Nastasia, while also speaking jovially of how prepossessing he has found Peshenka. He describes her as a sympathetic woman, 
albeit not very clever, and as a victim rather than a villain in the affair of Raskolnikov's IOU. It was because Raskolnikov had no means of paying for his lodging, and because, after the death of her daughter, she owed him no familial loyalty, that she planned to evict him. And she had given Raskolnikov's IOU by way of payment to the exploitative businessman Chabarov, who, counting on the sacrificial devotion of Raskolnikov's mother and sister, made a formal demand for payment. Raskolnikov interrupts to excoriate himself for his baseness in having told Pashenka that his mother, a beggar herself, would pay. Razumihin says he then put up his own money to get the IOU back from Chabarov. He presents it to Raskolnikov, who turns to the wall without uttering a word. Still looking at the wall, Raskolnikov asks whether it was Razumihin he did not recognize when he was delirious. Razumihin says it was, and that he was enraged about it, especially when Razumihin brought with him the head clerk from the police department, Zamyatov, with whom he has recently become friends. He mentions that the two of them have been to see Luisa Ivanovna, the smart lady who had been pounced upon by Ilya Petrovich. Raskolnikov asks whether he said anything in his delirium, and Razumihin says he raved as delirious people do, talking about things like earrings and chains, the police superintendent, and a desperate interest in his sock and fringe for his trousers. Zamyatov himself hunted for, found, and gave Raskolnikov the sock. Razumihin takes ten rubles from the thirty-five, saying he will give an account of it in an hour, gives Raskolnikov the rest, and goes out, asking Nastasia to look in on him while he is away. After both have left, Raskolnikov leaps out of bed like a madman, impatient to set to work, but not recalling what it was he needed to do. He considers that they all know the truth and are only mocking him. He gazes around the room in bewilderment, then rushes to the corner to search in the hole under the paper, realizes that wasn't it, then rummages through the stove where he finds the fringe from his trousers, and under his pillow where he finds the sock. He finds it so grimy that Zamyatov could not have noticed the blood. In his confusion, he thinks he has been summoned to the police office, and recalls that that was days before. He then remembers that he had determined to escape, to run away, to take another lodging, or, since it was so easy for Razumihin to find him, perhaps to flee to America. But he cannot find his clothes or his boots, and he thinks someone has stolen them. His mind a-whirl in confused and contradictory thoughts, he laughs scornfully at how ill they all think he is gulps down the glass of beer that he discovers, unremembering, on the table, and then lies down again on his pillow, fading into a sound sleep. Hearing someone come in, he wakes up, and Razumihin says he had slept more than six hours. Raskolnikov asks whether Razumihin had been there before, having forgotten all the details of their encounter just hours earlier. Razumihin playfully presents to him the purchases he had made with the ten rubles—a cap, some breeches, 
a pair of boots, and underclothes. He says that Pashenka has provided Raskolnikov with three hempen shirts, and that she will no longer demand immediate payment for his lodging. In response to all this kindness, Raskolnikov shouts, Let me be, and waves him off with disgust. Despite his resistance, Razumihin helps him to change his linen. Raskolnikov asks what money it was all bought with, having forgotten that too. Then the door opens and a stranger comes in. It is Zosimov, the doctor, and he is described as tall, fat, fashionable, studiously free and easy, and irrepressibly self-important. Zosimov examines Raskolnikov, asks him how he is, to which Raskolnikov replies irritably that he is perfectly well, and seems lazily satisfied with his own cursory diagnosis and arbitrary recommendations about what he may do or eat. Against Zosimov's recommendations, Razumihin wishes to invite Raskolnikov to his housewarming party, which Zosimov himself had promised to attend. Also in attendance will be Razumihin's uncle, Porfiry Petrovich, the head of the local investigative department, and Zamyatov, the head clerk. Zosimov asks condescendingly what he or Raskolnikov can have in common with Zamyatov, in response to which Razumihin scorns men and their silly principles, saying, if a man is a nice fellow, that's the only principle that matters to him. When Zosimov accuses Zamyatov of taking bribes, Razumihin says, perhaps he does, but, quote, if one looks at men in all ways, are there many good ones left, unquote. He then explains that he and Zamyatov do have something in common. They are trying to help a house painter who has been mixed up in the case of the murder of an old pawnbroker, and, Nastasia adds to Raskolnikov, of her sister Lizaveta. She reminds him that he knows her, and that she once mended a shirt for him, and Raskolnikov stares at the wallpaper, feeling his arms and legs as lifeless as if they had been cut off. The house painter, Razumihin says, has been falsely accused of the murder, as Koch and Pistrikov had been previously, as a consequence of the petrified routine of the police investigators. And he and Zamyatov intend to prove it, to clear the house painter's name, and to introduce a new, more psychological approach to investigation. Then he tells the story. When investigators still believed Koch and Pistrikov were the murderers, they were approached by a peasant named Dushkin, who brought them earrings that had been pawned to him by a house painter named Nikolai. Dushkin asked where he had gotten them, and Nikolai assured him that he had found them in the street. Dushkin had long known Nikolai, and he knew he and another man named Dmitri had been painting in the house where Aliona Ivanovna lived. So, when the news broke that she and Lizaveta had been murdered, he immediately suspected Nikolai. Dushkin went to the house and found Dmitri, who said that Nikolai was on a drinking spree. The next day, Dushkin saw Nikolai coming home and confronted him, asking again where he got the earrings, and whether he had heard what happened in the house where he had been working. Nikolai turned white, said he had not heard, 
renewed his contention that he found them in the street, and then darted away. From this, Dushkin concluded that the murder was Nikolai's doing, and Zosimov, listening to the story, agrees. Razumihin tells him to wait and hear the end, and goes on with his story. After that, Nikolai had gone to a tavern, sold a silver cross he took from around his neck, and a few minutes later went into the cowshed outside and tried to hang himself. When he was stopped, he asked to be taken to the police station so he could confess. There, he insisted to police he knew nothing about the murder, that he had found the earrings on the pavement, that he didn't go to work the next day because he was drinking, and that he ran away because once he learned about the murders, he was afraid he would be accused. Under pressure from the police, he confessed that he found the earrings not on the street, but in the flat where he was painting. After Dmitri painted his face, he said, he chased him down the stairs, shouting, knocked him down, and began playfully beating him. That's why, in the murder scene, we heard that strange cry of Mitka, 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 a diminutive of Dmitri, and saw a man run headlong down the stairs. When Nikolai went back to the flat, he found a box with earrings in it on the floor behind the door. At this detail, Raskolnikov awakens as if from a dream, and suddenly cries, Behind the door, staring at Razumihin with a look of terror. Nikolai then pawned the earrings, lied about them, learned of the murders, and tried to hang himself, he said, from anxiety. The police have taken this all as proof, but Razumihin says that any man who understands human nature should see it otherwise. First, all they have against him is the circumstantial evidence of the earrings, and he has an explanation that accounts for it. Second, he regards it as a psychological impossibility that someone who had just five minutes before murdered two women with an axe could have been as countless witnesses can attest they were, playfully rolling around with his friend like children. Razumihin concludes that the real murderer dropped those earrings and had been upstairs in the apartment when Koch and Pistrikov knocked on the door. Zosimov declares Razumihin's theory too clever and melodramatic. And at that moment, a stranger opens the door. The next of my posts was called We Meet Razumihin. No commentary on these chapters would be complete without a discussion of their star, Razumihin. What can we say about him? To begin, we should return to what Dostoevsky had to say about him back in Chapter 4 of Part 1, before we were formally introduced. Quote, He was an exceptionally good-humored and candid youth, good-natured to the point of simplicity, though both depth and dignity lay concealed under that simplicity. He was extremely intelligent, though he was certainly rather a simpleton at times. He was of striking appearance, tall, thin, black-haired, and always badly shaved. He was sometimes uproarious, and was reputed to be of great physical strength. There was no limit to his drinking powers— but he could abstain from drink altogether. He sometimes went too far in his pranks, but he could do without pranks altogether. 
Another thing striking about Razumihin, no failure distressed him, and it seemed as though no unfavorable circumstances could crush him. Unquote. So, good-natured, candid, jovial, uproarious, resilient, strong. In other words, aside from them both being former students, both intelligent, both poor, he is about as unlike Raskolnikov as anyone could be. What I found most striking about him in these chapters is, first, his bounding energy and effusive life, particularly in contrast to Raskolnikov, who shrinks in terror from all that is happening around him. Razumihin eats heartily, flirts shamelessly, and speaks volubly. From the moment he flings open the door and stoops inside, he fills the room not just with his tall, hardy body, but with his exuberant soul. Also notable is his optimism and resourcefulness. While Raskolnikov had bitterly scorned the tyrannical landlady and rued the oppressive burden of her demands for payment, Razumihin merely talks to her, finds her charming, charms her, and strikes a practicable bargain. While Raskolnikov helplessly bemoans his lost lessons and his family's sacrifices, Razumihin takes what work he can get, even if it means being a translator of crude books. While Raskolnikov wrings his hands over societal injustice, Razumihin makes energetic efforts toward reform, taking the part of the falsely accused house painter, for example, in an effort to change the petrified routine of the police department. He seems to me a living refutation that Raskolnikov's soul was forged by circumstances. However grim they might be, Razumihin cheerfully finds his way. He is warmly, generously, guilelessly devoted, a quality that makes for a very uncomfortable double reality throughout this scene. Finding Raskolnikov delirious with illness, he takes charge, sweet-talking his landlady, discharging his debts, feeding him soup, buying his clothes, trying endlessly to lift his spirits, never with a moment's suspicion that this invalid is ill because he is a murderer. Even in the face of Raskolnikov's ingratitude and spite, he acts as a loyal and uncomplaining friend. I have read that Dostoevsky often assigns his characters names that reflect their natures. Raskolnikov, for example, apparently means schismatic or divided. Razumihin translates to something like reason or the reasonable one. His is a version of reason that contrasts starkly with that of our protagonist. It is not the cold, relentless, pathological monomania of a fixed idea. He seems instead more commonsensically astute, able to think for himself and to see beyond convention. And yet, there is so much here that he does not see. Which leaves us wondering, will he discover the truth? When and how? And what will he do? Is my image of Razumihin consistent with your own? Have I missed important facets of his character? If you have time, please let me know in the Facebook group. The last of my posts was called Sympathy for the Devil. Many members of our group, 
as well as countless other readers of and commentators on crime and punishment throughout the ages, have described a strange discomfort that the novel, very deliberately, I think, provokes. You find yourself at least sympathizing with, if not in some ways even admiring, a murderer. I would like to explore some of the reasons I think that might be, and if you have time to share them, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, too. Some readers point to Raskolnikov's despairing circumstances and to his own justification of the crime as inviting sympathy. He did live in desperate poverty amidst a sordid society. His sister was driven to painful sacrifices by cruel and exploitative men. The old pawnbroker was a vile woman who took advantage of her customers and abused her hapless sister. Some sympathetic readers think that though all this might not justify murder, it at least serves to mitigate the crime. This explanation doesn't carry much weight for me, personally. Raskolnikov's moral algebra struck me as simply and patently perverse. Another possibility is that we as readers are not allowed the easy evaluation of a cardboard villain. Raskolnikov is a character of nuance and complexity, with some qualities that inspire admiration and others that invite contempt. We see, time and time again, his irrepressible, instinctive compassion. The patient interest with which he hears out Marmoladov's woeful tale, the humane impulse that prompts him to repeatedly give the only money he has to suffering strangers, the pain with which he reads his mother's letter and his outrage over the sacrifice of his sister, the child version of himself that he sees in his dreams, a boy who weeps and rages over cruelty and compassionately kisses the lips and eyes of an abused horse. I think, too, that we are made to feel a strange, abstract sympathy for the fact that he is a man who takes ideas seriously, despite the fact that his particular pathological idea leads him seriously astray. In a way, we can feel more contempt for the student in the tavern, who meticulously lays out what he regards as an incontestable justification for murder, as simple arithmetic. And then, when asked by his companion whether he would actually do it, responds, Of course not. While loathing the savage idea that has taken hold of his heart, we cannot help but appreciate his intellectual and introspective intensity, which will not admit of the halfway, the just about, the almost, and the in between a phrase that some of you might recognize and that isn't meant to equate the two characters. I'm also reminded of a laudatory line from Hugo's 93 about Simordan. Quote, he used meditation as one uses a pair of pincers. He did not think he had a right to leave an idea until he had followed it through to the end. He thought relentlessly. Unquote. There is also the fact that, while we might despise him for his act of brutal inhumanity, it is hard to maintain a posture of fervent moral outrage against a man who so very clearly despises himself. 
He wants nothing to do with the spoils he collected. He bitterly refuses any kindnesses offered him. And he is, almost literally, crippled by the burden of his crime. We may not want to feel compassion for him in his tortured self-loathing, but when he is reminded of Lizaveta, and he stares vacantly at that white flower in the wallpaper, and he feels his arms and legs as lifeless as if they had been cut off, we can't help it. Finally, there's the simple fact that Dostoevsky has invited us so deeply into Raskolnikov's soul that we have become Raskolnikov. We committed his crime, suffer his madness, live his paranoia, dread the prospect of being caught. Have you ever had one of those dreadful nightmares that begins with you having already done something terrible, and you feel a combination of guilt and terror and a pained confusion about how this crime was committed beyond your control? Reading Crime and Punishment feels, to me, something like that. Critic Alfred Kazin sums this all up by saying that Dostoevsky hates Raskolnikov's philosophy, but loves Raskolnikov. That he abominates the murder, but loves the murderer. And more, that he is Raskolnikov. He says a lot more, but it admits of thematic spoilers. So we will have to come back to it another time. Meanwhile, let me know whether you too feel a strange sort of sympathy for this devil.